the idea of the canary in the mine shaft. The miners really did have a canary in a cage, and the canary was the first one to, to react to these toxic fumes that would be coming out of the mine shaft, and it was their biosensor. In so many ways, our, our cops are the canary in the mine shaft in today's world. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. I'll be completely honest, I can no longer stomach the national news. Every morning, I wake up, I grab my coffee, and I keep it local. Yet, even then I can't help but wonder, how did we get here? As a society, as an industry, and where do we go from here? You just heard Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, and he's joined the show to help me answer these questions. He's a U.S. Army Ranger, a paratrooper, and a former West Point psychology professor. He also has five patents to his name, has published four novels, two children's books, and six nonfiction books to include his perennial bestseller, On Killing, with over half a million copies sold. Since his retirement from the U.S. Army in 1998, he's been on the road almost 300 days a year as one of our nation's leading trainers for military, law enforcement, mental health providers, and school safety organizations. In my 30 years of law enforcement, I have never heard a better speaker, nor one that has affected me as much as Dave Grossman. And as we tee up the conversation with Dave, I asked him for his thoughts on the attacks on law enforcement. His answers may surprise you. Let's hear from Dave. Dave, thanks for coming on and talking to me. Man, Steve, it's my honor, brother. I, I really try to take a minute to honor the podcast process, the people who present, to host it, and the people who listen to it. When I was a kid, you know, we had, uh, you know, three major networks and uh, two city newspapers and 20 national magazines. And the only way to get heard on any broad scale was limited to these, these. And now we have the podcast and, and they represent people who are giving us a deeper depth of knowledge and people who are seeking greater knowledge. And I think it's one of the, the reassuring things about our civilization right now that can make you take a deep breath. And in the midst of all the madness, there's people that are digging deeper and learning deeper and thinking deeper. And the topic that we're on couldn't be more important, which is cops and, and the idea of the canary in the mine shaft. You know, not everybody knows that, you know, the, the miners really did have a canary in a cage. And when the canary keeled over, I mean, it was time to get out of there. Because uh, the canary was the first one to, to react to these toxic fumes that would be coming out of the mine shaft. And it was their biosensor. In so many ways, our cops are the canary in the mine shaft in today's world. And the defund uh, police thing is, uh, is so counterproductive, so destructive. There, there's so much more. But we, I want to talk a minute about why that's happening and help people understand the greater dynamics. But my, my hat's off to you and to your listeners, and, and I'm proud to be here. Well, thank you very much for that. And, and I, you know, when I talked about canary in the coal mine to start with, people thought I was being too clever for my own good. So it's, uh, I, I really love hearing, uh, then when people get it. So thank you very much. And talking about the defunding and law enforcement in general, the reason I wanted to talk to you was about that, you know, how law enforcement is affected within their communities and how the attacks on law enforcement affect the communities. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. We got to understand something. When a child watches a movie, what happens is real to them. They cannot, they, they haven't got the ability to discern. I tell people, you know, my, my son a little while back, he, he asked my wife, said, did I tell that to you or did I dream it? And she said, you must have dreamed it because I don't remember it. As adults, we can kind of 
remember a time or two when dreams and reality got mixed up. Well, for children, dreams and reality and what's on TV and what's in the movie, it's real to them. So I grew up with a, a one Adam 12 and Sergeant Friday, and I instantly wanted to be Marshall Dillon. I had the, had the lunchbox, baby, Gunsmoke, right? Today, there's a generation. I, I hope your kids grew up on reruns of Bonanza, but there's a generation that grew up with Breaking Bad and Sons of Anarchy and Sopranos. And maybe one cop movie in 30 years didn't have a bad cop in there somewhere. We all cheer when the bad cop dies. You know, <laughs> right. Denzel Washington. Denzel's a bad cop. I've seen him. We don't understand the harm we did when we fed those shows to children. They, when, when the evil thing a cop did on the show, it happened to the child. They hate cops. Now, when I was a kid, we all were killing Nazis. Nazis were the ones that we killed. You know, we always killing Nazis. The movies, we were killing Nazis. Nazis were the bad guys. Well, now in so many movies and video games and TV shows, cops are the bad guys. And we don't understand the harm that we have done with these things. They believe from the youngest age that cops are evil. And then we got the internet. And every nutcase, every, every goofy conspiracy, theory, nutcase in the world can find a pool of people that have the same thought and reinforcing the little echo chamber. And so the cop haters have been reinforcing themselves. And then, you know, you, you got the cop who, uh, who didn't treat you. He was ugly and mean when he pulled you over, whatever the case may be. And this dynamic that the cops are the bad guys and we take the cops off the streets, everything's going to get better. That, that, that is insane. We all know it. But where did it come from? We fed it to them as children. We fed it to them in the video games and the TV shows and the movies. And, you know, there was a time when television movies operated by a code. And the code said, we understand the impact these stories are going to have on our civilization. And we hold to these standards that law enforcement will be depicted as good, that religious authority will be de depicted as good, that criminals will be depicted as, as bad. And we've turned that on its head. And now, you know, um, the thing to understand, and this is terribly important, the murder rate is being held down by medical technology ever-growing leaps of medical technology, saving lives and holding down the murder rate. Now, that's just one of the, bam, flat forehead, obvious things. I briefed the vice president last August and gave him a copy of my book, Assassination Generation. And I told him about that, you know, and, and he said, well, should we use ag assault? And I said, yes, it's a far better measure, but it's so easy to shift the line between ag assault and simple assault. Where do you draw the line? It's like great inflation in schools. Other than murder, the cop will tell you would make everything whatever you want it to be. It, nobody has to lie, although people are lying. Three years ago, headline article in LA, LA Times, LAPD took a thousand negative assaults, downgraded to simple assaults, said, see, crime was down. They were caught red-handed. There was a whistleblower in the office, and, and they lied. Oh, it, it was a filing error. Then why did it all go in the wrong direction? They lied a thousand times. They were caught, and they lied again. And best I can tell, there was no accountability. Nobody fired. Nobody reprimanded. There's cops out there getting a written reprimand for a free cup of coffee. And yet we see leadership committing moral failures like that on reporting crime data. So what, what, what we know is this. I told the vice president, when, when we talk about inflation, we talk about inflation-adjusted dollars. If we, if we say that, that this is how much money that would have been in today's dollar, if we don't do that, we're lying. And we need to have medically adjusted murders. We have one good data point. Right around the year 2000, a major study, UMass Harvard told us, we, as of 2000, if we had 1970s level medical technology, 
the murder rate would be three to four times what it is. So we can extrapolate that data out for the next 20 years and, and, and kind of see what the trend, how much further that would separate. One expert says tourniquets alone have probably cut the murder rate in half in just the last decade. And those have become standard equipment for law enforcement agencies across the U.S. You know, I asked my cops, how many all carried tourniquets 10 years ago? Nobody. How many carried tourniquets today? <laughs> Virtually everybody. Cop slaps on a tourniquet, saves a life, he's prevented a murder. Yet now, half a million cops on duty every day between the three shifts, incredibly violent times. If just 20 to 30 cops a day slap on a tourniquet, prevent a murder, we cut the murder rate in half. So we don't realize how bad it is. And of course, the same thing applies to cops, holding down the number of dead cops and body armor and tactics and training and equipment. The only good measure of the problem is what I call the year-over-year increase in cops murdered. In 2016, five dead cops in Dallas, four dead cops in Baton Rouge. And every place you see a multiple homicide of cops, I'll show you many where they tried and failed. The canary in the mine shaft is, is not doing well. 2016 was the all-time worst year-over-year increase in cops murdered. But the thing that people don't understand is year after year, the number of people murdered has been coming down. And then in 2015 and 2016, holding up in 17 the murder rate exploded like nothing we have ever seen. And people don't even know it. And you say, why did it happen during those years? We've been building up to it. And the FBI guys have put together the data. They call it the Ferguson effect. They say we've created a sense of anger in our criminals. Like somehow the cop's a bad guy for enforcing the law. A, a sense of righteous indignation in our criminals. The, the Ferguson effect. And then I, I tell people... we. We got governments telling people to not obey the law, sanctuary cities and sanctuary states. And maybe they're doing the right thing morally, but very bad things happen when the government tells Peter to disobey the law. You don't draw the line, disobey these laws and not these laws. It doesn't work that way. So this breakdown of our civilization, breakdown of our culture, and usually use the slide, we got a, a Supreme Court justice, Louis Brandeis, old Supreme Court justice, with a great quote. He said, crime is contagious. If the government becomes a lawbreaker, I add, if the government tells you to disobey the law, it breeds contempt for law. It invites every man to become a law on himself. It invites anarchy. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, that's what we're seeing, anarchy, contempt for law. And it began with the six, six shows we showed our children. And then the media would take the side of the criminal. And, and, and now we got this insanity of mayors who, who are defunding police. The mayor of New York shuts down the plainclothes division. Well, that's going to make us all safe. It, and, and reducing funding, the LAPD, by millions of dollars. And so we see those cities explode. And these are crazy times. But remember this, for every city doing something stupid, there's a bunch doing the right thing. One Supreme Court justice uh, called America 50 laboratories for democracy. Well, it's more than that. There are thousands of sheriffs in America and each one answers only to the voters once every four years. Tens of thousands of police chiefs, which answer to the, to the city management. And we are tens of thousands of laboratories for democracy. These big cities are sold out doing crazy stuff. Just believe there's plenty of other cities out there hanging on, trying to carry us through these times. But they're scary times. And the potential for this become the national norm should be deeply concerning. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about that systemic racism. Everybody complains about the systemic racism in law enforcement. It's except law enforcement in the United States is not systemic. It's, it's decentralized. It's spread out into the communities and every community gets a different type of law enforcement based on their needs. And I think that that's absolutely fascinating what you've just said. 
And, and the idea that there's some systematic uh, ratio of cops killing blacks, or, you know, and that's it's just the opposite. And that's that dynamic where cops are far less likely to pull the trigger, far less likely to take deadly force action. And and those studies are out there, yeah. Yeah, at times when they should have shot, and they chose not to, and that one worked out okay, it may not next time. But, you know, there's another angle on all this. With, you know, my, my big thing that I talk about is sleep deprivation, the elephant in the living room. Airline pilots and the, and the flight attendants and the mechanic working on the plane are required to get enough sleep. Uh, truck drivers required because enough sleep, but cops aren't. You know, cop pulls over a trucker, first thing to do is check his logs and see if he's sleeping. But <laughs> not held to the same standard. Power plant operators, ferryboat operators, Amtrak engineers, and many, many other people require but long enough sleep that cops aren't. That should enrage us. And what we know is this, 18 hours without sleep and your impaired judgment equal to 0.08 legally drunk. 24 hours without sleep, your impaired judgment equal to 0.10 above legally drunk. Two nights without sleep and you're psychotic. Any graduate of Army Ranger School will tell you hallucinations on the third day without sleep. And we're in the middle of a civilization-wide epidemic of sleep deprivation. And it is the key factor in an explosion of traffic deaths and an explosion of suicides. Suicide is not a rational act. You have to have profoundly impaired judgment. Alcohol and suicide have always been closely related. Alcohol creates impaired judgment. You make a bad decision, never a chance to rethink it. But the most pervasive form of impaired judgment is sleep deprivation. Some of the military research says, now, our military suicides are all studied intensely. And there's no relationship between combat and a military suicide. Non-combat vet is likely to take life as a combat vet. But a sleep-deprived soldier can be up to five times more likely to take their life. The two major killers of our cops, suicide and traffic deaths. And the primary factor that empowers suicide and traffic deaths is sleep deprivation. I think the last study I saw was uh, law enforcement officers are seven times more likely to take their life than uh, the, the average citizen. So that's a huge number. And we've got to get a grip on this. It's killing us. And, and if somebody showed up at work drunk, he'd kick his ass. If he shows that work sleep deprived because he played video games all night long, he needs his ass kicked. Yeah, and right. Hey, it's cute. It's funny. Yeah, man, I played video games all night long. The new edition of whatever the hell, and I couldn't turn it off. That's not acceptable. You got a sick baby at home. Instead of the sick baby, man, we got you covered. You're up all night long on social media or playing video games. That's a self-inflicted wound. And we can no longer get away with that. It's killing us. And it's the one great, big, huge, low-hanging piece of fruit we could do something about. If I were king and could pass one law, I'd mandate sleep for cops. Who could vote against that? And, you know, the interesting thing about that, that that really hits home as you're talking about this, that, that hits with me and resonates with me is that when you look at police officers, understaffed police departments, because they won't hire anybody because they've defunded us a long time ago. Uh, and, and these officers are working double shifts because they don't, you don't get paid enough on their base salary. They got to pull the overtime to make everything meet. And they're putting down 16, 18 hours a day, three, four, five, six days in a row. And they're not getting any sleep. That's a recipe for disaster. And that's the equivalent of cops running around drunk. And, yet, you know, and again, if, if your airline pilot did that, you'd be enraged. I get, a, I get in a plane every night. You know, and and uh, under ordinary circumstances, things have slowed down a little bit during the quarantine. But if they don't have a, a rested crew, not just a pilot, but the whole crew, they'll cancel the flight. And I'm good with that. Better no pilot than a tired pilot. Better no cop 
than a tired cop. We got to think about that. We just can't keep doing business this way. And what'll happen is then we don't have enough. Well, good. Pay them more and hire more. And we will. We're a very wealthy nation. When things are wrong, we throw money at it. And we've only begun to throw money at this. And so for three years straight, the homicide rate exploded and nobody even knows it. Now we're starting to get reported. New York homicide rate exploded. Chicago, Atlanta, LA, they've exploded with violence. And we've been building up to this. Maybe the time will come when we start paying cops what they deserve to be paid. We got to think about cops like airline pilots making split second life and death decisions every day. And they got to be held to the same standard, the simulator. If they go through no shoot, no shoot scenarios in the simulator and they can't respond appropriately, then what do you do with a pilot that fails in the simulator? Retrain him. If he can't do right, he's got to be pulled off flight status. And we got to do the simulator. We got to do training standards. You know, de-escalation is great stuff, but it begins with you being calm. And I teach that, the breathing exercise, the other stuff, and mental preparation. If, if you're not confident in, with your weapon, if you're not confident in your skills, when things start escalating, you're going to panic. When you're confident in your skills, you remain calm is the first step to, to them remaining calm. De-escalation begins with you. And panic is contagious, right? As as the one officer panics, other officers panic, uh, citizens panic, witnesses panic, and all of a sudden you've got, as you said, a recipe for disaster. Panic is contagious and calm is contagious. And the thing to wrap your mind around is violent visual imagery inflicted upon children is real. Their bodies go into fight or flight mode. We'll show you the brain scan studies. Again, my book, Assassination Generation, the brain scan data is in there. This is your kid's brain. This is your kid's brain on video games. They go into fight or flight mode. They're not capable of rational thought. Predictive left brain, rational thought has been shut down. You know, uh, church camps nationwide say they ain't nothing spiritual happened in this camp for the first two days because they're detoxing. You take more from TV, movies, cell phones, video games for two days. They are miserable. They're going through withdrawal symptoms. On the third day, it's like somebody threw a switch. That's amazing what you just said. I used to run a, a teen academy camp at the police department, and we would bring in teenagers from 13 to 17 years old for a week. And we had them for about nine hours a day, starting early in the morning. We did a mini police academy with them, uh, you know, physical fitness stuff, and then games, obstacle courses, a lot of interaction, learning about law enforcement. And those first two days, you're absolutely right. The kids were miserable. They didn't want to do anything. But by the fourth day, they loved it so much, they didn't want to go home. Yes. For the first time, They've experienced real life. No TV, no movie, no video games. That's, that's an artificial life. That's a false life. And kids today, they don't have a life. You know, we, we, we kick them out the door and wander around the neighborhood. Today, we call the cops if you did that. You know, the idea of free-range children. Parents always kick them out the door. And, and that's what they did to me when I was a kid. But we don't see that anymore. They don't have a life. And, and as the violence goes up, as the fear goes up, we're less inclined to let our kids go loose. And so we're in a vicious cycle. They don't have a life. Their life is television and video games. And they're the sick shows and the sick movies and the sick video games, not the good ones that could at least give them some positive dynamics. But you take them away from that for a couple of days and all of a sudden they see the real life they could actually have. And, and you're, you're, it's good that it worked out for you guys. You had them nine hours a day. A lot of them were going home and watching TV and doing stuff, but hopefully it made them so tired. All they did oh, yeah. was go home and sleep. They were so tired. That's all, they, all the parents would say is they would come home and go right to bed and get up the next day. And, and, you know, very often 
they're sleep deprived because they're staying up all night watching TV. They're staying up late at night. And you've taken away the sleep deprivation. You've taken away the toxic substance in their life. But one of the big things a couple decades or so back was the idea of boot camp. We're going to take these troubled kids and we're instead of jail, we're going to put them in a tent or we'll put them on cots and we'll do boot camp. But you know what they did? They'd run their boot camp during the day and then they all watch TV at night. And, and you're missing the whole effect. You know, they, you know, they're all watching TV. They're all sitting together watching TV at night and you've lost the effect. The impact of military boot camp is we own you 24-7. You, you, you don't have a cell phone. You never have a TV. You don't have a laptop. You're ours. And again, you know, the first couple of days are miserable. But after that, we can really begin to transform those kids. And so Stanford Med School, it's in my book, again, Assassination Generation. Stanford Med School pioneered a TV turnoff curriculum. It was replicated by an entire K-12 through school district in upstate Michigan. No TV, no movie, no video games for 10 days. And the parents were in two, and we're, this is why we're doing it. The parents were educated. Everybody is on board. The few kids who were still watching TV were the weird ones. They were the ones out of the equation. They taught the kids the games. Kids don't know how to play hide and seek anymore. They don't know how to play freeze tag. They don't know how to play the games. They're teaching the kids games. They're board games at home, walks with the family, bicycle rides with the family. And after 10 days, the kids loved it. They, and, and, and controlled double blind observation a playground and cafeteria behavior. We cut violence in half. We cut bullying in half and we raised test scores, double digits by detoxing for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, we put the kids on a TV turnoff. We put them on a TV diet or a TV budget. And we say, what are the things you did these last 10 days that you liked? What would you want to do more of? And so this, there is hope at the end of the tunnel you know, we held crime down for 20, 30 years by putting ever more people in prison. And we went in 1970, 100 per 100,000 Americans in jail. In 2008, 500 per 100,000 Americans in jail. And we did hold down crime by putting ever more people in jail. But in 2008, we ran out of prisons. Every year since 2008, the number's back down again. We'll never build enough prisons to solve this problem. But the teacher in the classroom can educate a generation and, and lead us home and this TV turnoff curriculum and this detoxing of our children, uh, it, there really is hope for, for the future. You know what? We've been around this block before. The video game industry, it's in, again, my book, Assassination Generation. Uh, the state of California overwhelmingly passed a law to regulate children's access to violent video games. Home of Hollywood, home of Silicon Valley, overwhelmingly voted. Arnold Schwarzenegger signed the law, his governor. He said, I'll make violent movies. I'll protect my kids from the movies. And I especially want to protect them from these violent video games. The video game industry fought all the way to the Supreme Court. They fought dirty. They lied. They deceived. That They had vast amounts of money. One video game, the year it came out, Grand Theft Auto V, made more money than the entire global music industry. They had vast amounts of money. And they conned a bunch of old men that never played Pong in their life into overturning the California law and declaring a constitutional First Amendment right to sell any game to any kid at any age. And so that, that's where we're in. Nobody even knows about the lawsuit. Nobody even knows that that happened. We're not going to ban media violence. But what we're saying is, don't sell this stuff to children. And today, we, we, there's this enormous scientific consensus that violent visual imagery marketed to children is doing vast harm. And we don't even realize it. Their bodies treat like it's real. 
They saw that evil cop in that movie. It actually happened to them. Cops are evil. They believe it for the rest of their lives. And the harm that's been done and the time it's going to take to turn this thing around is desperate. In the meanwhile, I tell my cops, you didn't do this job to be rich, at least not legally. You didn't do this job to be a famous celebrity, at least not in a good way. When you chose to be a cop, you chose a life of sacrifice. And you must believe your sacrifice for a noble and worthy purpose. And the worse it gets, the more desperate we need what you have to give. I tell them, you be like Batman. The average citizen in Gotham City watched the news, crime, death, violence. What do they do? Hunger down, hide, lock the door. Batman hears about crime and violence. He trains his tail off. We always make fun of golfers in my class. It's all in good fun. with them. You'll never find Batman on the golf course. He hasn't got time. He trains his tail off, and then he uses his skills to go out and make the world a better place. You know, we, we study people who do not get PTSD, Holocaust survivors and prisoners of war who, who are tortured and malnourished and do not get PTSD. We studied them. I met one a while back. As a young pilot, he'd been shot down over North Vietnam. Year after year of torture, malnutrition, North Vietnam without end in sight. He told me, he said, I walked out of that POW camp. It's a simple medical fact. I did not have PTSD, and most of us didn't. I said, sir, that's resiliency. That's what we study. I call it the bulletproof mind. What made that possible? Here's what he said. Every evil act the enemy inflicted upon us renewed our faith. We're on the right side in this war. Think about that. Every bad thing that happens in this world should renew your faith that the world needs what you have to give. And the worse it gets because we love our family. We love our children. We love our community. We love our nation. We love our God. And, the, and the, then the greatest motivator on earth is love. And you can't love your agency. They don't love you. They're, you can love the people. You can love what you do. You can love the people you serve and, and, and believe in who you are. The worse it gets, the more determined we are. We give it all we got. I, I tell people waiting at home for me is my bride. Next week will be 45 years. She was my high school sweetheart. Now, she was 15. I was 17 when I proposed to her. We, we are from Arkansas. <laughs> Two years later, she married a crazy army paratrooper, and she's been in this road with me for 45 years. I love her more than life itself. And yet, since I retired from the army, I've been on the road truly somewhere between two and 300 days a year on the road. I get home one, maybe two nights a week, conjugal visit, clean underwear, back on the road. Because the only people on earth more precious than my bride are my grandchildren. And we believe if we love our children, if we love our grandchildren, we love our nation, if we love our God, we're going to walk out that door and give 100%. I'm 63 years old, and my prayers, I can do it for another 20 years. Every day that I have the help, every day that somebody wants to hear what i got to give, I'm going to go out there and give it. And I ask everybody out there, to the utmost of your ability, you do the same. And, and one of the things I talk about is, uh, are there things worse than death? I'll tell you what's worse than death. It's to not carry your gun off duty and stand there and watch your children die and not have your gun on your body. Tell me you wouldn't spend the rest of your life in hell. We carry that gun off duty because there are things worse than death. And because we love our family and we love our children and we know bad things can happen. And that same mindset is what allows us to thrive and survive on the job. We know that bad things happen, but I have the tools and I have the skills to prevent it. And I want to be there for them in their hour of greatest need. Most people we work with are just ill-informed, confused, or badly raised. But on one end of the spectrum, there is true evil out there. 
I was uh, there after the Nickel Mines Amish school massacre. A man came in the back door of an Amish one-room schoolhouse, told the boys to leave, and held the girls hostage, and ultimately murdered those girls with a shotgun blast to the head. I was training them, first responders, uh, then they were hurting. And the Amish parents were there. The Amish school people were there. And a little Amish father came up to me, just sweet little man, beard and coveralls. And he said, he said, my daughter was there. He said, I didn't lose my daughter. But I lost the daughter I had. I said, sir, I'm not sure I understand. He said, she's brain dead. She's a vegetable. If you ever use the word evil, use up what happened that day in that school. Just, just executing those little girls for the shark and blessed at the head one by one is an act of pure evil. There is evil in this world. And we live to confront that evil. Most people are just ill-informed. And, and the thing to understand, too, is this, and this is critically important. We're always trying to save lives. We're shooting to save lives. Yeah, and I want to thank you for that because, you know, I, I retired last year. And, you know, recently with everything been going on, I, I found myself getting angry or upset. And, and my wife was like, you know, what are you getting angry for? You retired. You don't have to deal with that anymore. And I'm like, I may not be working every day, but it's not changed who I am. And not what it changed what I did and what I do. So everything you've just said is is so important, I think, for people to understand and get. I tell people, I, I train the military. I train Predator and Reaper squadrons. And that Predator operator has been ordered to kill that terrorist with a Hellfire missile. And if he doesn't kill that person, he has failed in his mission. Our mission is never to kill. We're always trying to save lives. We're using deadly force because we have no other option in the face of immediate threat to life, limb, or grievous bodily harm. The moment that person drops the gun, we will try to save their life like any other life on the planet. You know, you and I remember the Hollywood bank robbery, maybe the, the first major law enforcement shootout on national TV. Bunches of LAPD officers shooting bank robbers with, uh, with body armor and rifles. The bank robbers were finally done. The world watched. LAPD jumped on those guys, stripped off their body armor, and tried to save their lives. The world said, those bank robbers just tried to kill the cops. And now the cops are trying to save their life. That's right. I, I'll give you case after case where a cop had to shoot somebody. Family was there. Community was there. Very stressful situation. They jump on the body. They slap on a tourniquet. They put on quick lot. They, they provide CPR and completely defuse the situation and never lose track of that. that. Our strength comes with that. Our purity comes with that. We're always trying to save lives. And we use deadly force because there's no other option. And, and the moment they're no longer a threat, as fast as we can, which is not necessarily all that fast, there's still some latent reflexes. As fast as we can, we'll stop pulling the trigger and start trying to save that life. And that's so terribly important to understand why we're doing what we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's fantastic stuff. Thank you very much for, for that. Dave, thanks for coming on and talking to me. I, I really appreciate it. I've so much enjoyed what we've talked about, and I'd love to do it again sometime. Well, let's do. And kind of a, a thing to wrap up is this concept of the universal human phobia. The thing to understand is in the Bible of psychiatry and psychology, the DSM tells us, Whenever your cause of your trauma is human in nature, it's usually more severe and long-lasting. And I tell people now, you tell me, is there a difference between these two scenarios? Scenario one, a tornado hits a house while you're gone, puts your family in the hospital. How do you feel about that? Thank God they're alive. Scenario two, a gang of criminals breaks into the house and beats your family into a hospital stay while you're gone. How do you feel about that one? All the difference in the world. 
One's an act of nature. The other is an intentional malignant act by human beings that chose to do that to you. And that's why one serial killer, you know, we're really victims of our own success. There's very few serial killers anymore. We've got so much DNA analysis and cameras and resources there. We usually catch them pretty doggone quick. And, uh, and of course, murder rates being held by medical technology. But one serial killer, one serial rapist can paralyze a city. And so I need you to wrap your mind around this. Interpersonal human aggression is the most toxic, psychologically corrosive, destructive realm any human being will ever face. You think the firefighter prepares for the fire, the diver prepares for the sea, the pilot prepares for the sky. How much more so do we need to prepare for another human being who's trying to snuff our life out or to take other people's lives? Interpersonal human aggression. To run toward the sound of the guns when everyone else runs away. And if you understand how corrosive and destructive interpersonal human aggression can be, then why do we do it? Why do we do it? Others need not. That our children need not. We sacrifice, and this is a life of sacrifice. You'll never get stinking rich. You'll never be a famous celebrity. And if need be, we kill. If need be, we die so that our children need not. And if you understand how corrosive and destructive that realm is, and if you understand that we, we survive and exist in that realm to protect others from having to do it, then you understand the beauty and the power, the nobility, and the flat-out love of those who put their life on the line every day that others need not. I tell my cops, you believe in who you are. You believe in what you do. And the Bible says, greater love is no one than this, that they give their life for their friends. But there's many ways to give your life. And sometimes the greatest love is not to sacrifice your life, but to live a life of sacrifice. To place the welfare of others head of your own. To walk out the door every day of your life. To do a dirty, thankless, dangerous job to the utmost of your ability every day of your life, because you know, if nobody did it, our civilization would no longer exist. Not to sacrifice your life, but to live a life of sacrifice, for most of us are lives the greatest love. And so I thank you, Steve. I thank all your magnificent men and women who are listening to this for your life of sacrifice. And have faith in our nation, have faith in our way of life. There have been other hard times. We made it through those times, we'll get through here. Trust your training, trust your comrades, trust our way of life and believe in who you are. As Dave shares his vast experience and knowledge on the impact sleep deprivation and media plays on society as a whole, he takes a moment to share a story from the research he does. In times like these, there are traits that allow us to give our best, even when we're feeling there's nothing left to give. Blue Canary is here to help you tell your stories. And I couldn't do that without the help of some very generous sponsors. Let's take a quick break to hear from one. Help your team rise to increasing expectations with Agency 360's cloud-based software. Whether it is for the training of new employees or annual performance evaluations, Agency 360 can help trainers and supervisors streamline documentation, create consistency, and communicate clearly. Help retention by setting the tone and culture early with Agency 360. Learn more at agency360.com. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y 360.com. When I first heard Dave speak, I was coming off of my own deadly force encounter. Having someone try and kill you for simply doing your job is a very sobering event. Now, I had read on killing and found it fascinating, but 
I was expecting a lot of clinical talk. By the end of the seminar, I wanted to run through a wall. His motivational style, combined with his passion and knowledge, helped get me out of the slump I'd found myself in and really made me want to get back to work. To make a difference, but this time armed with the knowledge of why. You see, the why changes everything. Now, we do a great job in law enforcement covering the how. We spend weeks training and focusing on the high-risk traffic stop, the shoot-don't-shoot encounters, firearms ranges, and emergency vehicle operations. You see, that's the how. The why is often where we struggle. Why do we do the things we do? And why do we charge to the sound of gunfire? Why do we go out and risk our lives protecting people who don't like or respect us? Dave's books and lectures have helped me and so many other officers understand the why. Now, his book, On Combat, the follow-up to On Killing, is one of the best books for law enforcement officers. Not only do I highly recommend it, but I've been known to buy copies of it for young officers. Now, you might not agree with everything Dave says, and some of his work has become highly controversial, particularly his take on the video game industry. Being a Generation X myself, I struggled when I first read Stop Teaching Our Kids to Kill. I loved movies and video games, and I saved my own money to buy my very first computer, a Commodore 64, when I was in high school. So how could something I love be so harmful? But after looking at his research and information, I realized that the video games being played by children today are not any different than the technology we use to train police and soldiers across the world, but without the all-important why. How did we get here? I realize that's not the right question. See, that forces me to focus on the past, to change things that cannot be undone, to give control of myself and my career to others. Now, the right question is, where do we go from here? And Dave helps provide us with a light at the end of the tunnel. And that's the story we have to tell. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. 